friends and welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host Christopher Heimerman and I'm not a licensed healthcare professional. No, I'm not a doctor, not a counselor. I'm a guy with 948 days of sobriety and I'm a guy with the gumption to put his story out there. Now, I do have a professional on the podcast. I have Daniel Hockman who as a counselor has worked in rehab facilities. He's spoken on the topic of addiction and recovery. This guy has been there and done that. And he's actually designed his own online program called Self Recovery, through which many, many countless people have tailored their own specific recovery program and are living their best lives. Daniel is a treasure trove of knowledge. And in this episode, he offers lots of practical advice just in time for the holidays. Grateful that he's here. I'm looking out the window. It's cold outside, but it's still a beautiful day to get our 40,000 steps in. So let's get it. gang i fast-tracked this episode there was a sense of urgency i was interviewing dan hockman and we're all making holiday plans right now which is incredibly stressful right and we're we're scrambling to buy gifts we're making arrangements of where we're gonna be and when we're gonna be there and those of us in recovery are also facing some tough decisions on on how to have conversations with folks about the potential lion's dens that we're walking into. And I'm not just talking about you know political conversations with people we haven't seen in a couple of years. No, a lot of us are going to be having conversations with folks in the vein of, hey, could you do me a favor and not have alcohol in the house? Could you please talk to Uncle Robert and ask him if he could not get falling down drunk this year? Well, as I mentioned before, you know, Daniel Hockman has been there and done that in terms of helping people get sober. And in our conversation, we bang on a lot of the familiar tropes that, you know, no two recovery programs are the same. Uh, In a lot of these questions I had for him, we kind of, you know, all roads lead back to the fact that it is a case-by-case basis on how we handle what he calls uh, some of the messier areas. However, in in some of these questions, I post very specific details to get some advice to pass along to you folks. And I personally came away with some really good, actionable insights, some great advice. And some of these situations don't even necessarily apply to me. Some of this stuff is, you know, anecdotes that I've heard from folks who listen to the podcast who have really been up against it. So I'm all but certain that you're going to find a nugget or two, or five, or six in this conversation that you're going to be able to use this holiday season. Now, as we get ready for the holiday season, as you or someone you love is wrestling with addiction, mental health issues, anger issues, I urge you to reach out to a partner of the podcast, DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers in Northern Illinois. (music) 
Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email duibhs at gmail.com. Okay, got your notepad, got a pen, got a quill, got your laptop, a laptop set up at the side as you listen to this. You're ready to take some notes because you're about to hear some incredible insights in my conversation with who I now consider a dear friend, Dr. Daniel Hockman. Tell me about self-recovery. What I what I really love about what you do, and we were talking about this the other day, is everything is very person specific. It's it's looking at looking at your clients holistically. How did you come to that conclusion? Because it sounds like you've got all sorts of experience in the field. Like what were you seeing and when did you when did you decide, look, we need to do things differently? Like how did you design the program? Yeah, it it really was an organic process. I was I actually remember it was several Thanksgiving breaks ago and I was getting calls on my voicemail for my practice and people were, were calling looking for help with addiction and I had no space and my practice is usually full and, and so I didn't have a way to help them, but they were specifically looking for an approach that I was delivering. And so I said, well, there's, it's a real shame if they have to go wandering around now trying to find this kind of approach, which would integrate together mental health, how you developed as a person, ask questions about life, and then look at every concept around addiction too. Because people either go to the addiction realm and often are left wanting more around looking and examining their history and their family, their history as their own person, different traumas, different milestones in their life. Uh, so being, you know, they wanted more psychology. And then people who go to a therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist are often left feeling like, well, do you really understand addiction? And so mm -hmm. uh, they're very siloed, very right? siloed. And, and so it's a shame, you know, a lot of people don't get an integrated approach that looks at the whole picture at the same time, which is really important to, to being successful. And, uh, and so I thought, well, people are leaving voicemails, I do get back to everybody, but you know, having to turn people away, I thought, well, I know there are only so many known concepts that can help people in the addiction and mental health realm. Uh, let's put them together in a way that people can go through their own journey and access that. And, uh, and so that was sort of the beginning of it. 
So you said this was around uh, Thanksgiving. Like, was this in the days leading up to Thanksgiving? Was it afterward or all the above? It was during a Thanksgiving break. I, I, I'd say it was like a, a day or two before Thanksgiving itself. And I, I vividly remember sitting there being frustrated with it. Yeah. As we were talking leading up to this interview, you said, you know, bring on the questions about the messy situations, you mm-hmm. know, where you can offer some some very practical advice, some actionable advice. And I mean, holidays, you, you want to talk about a messy time of year. You know, people are dealing with loneliness. They're dealing with stress. They're dealing with stress of like trying to get the holidays right from the gift giving perspective, but then also getting together with family members and hello, getting together with family members, perhaps for the first time in two years, mm-hmm. this upcoming holiday season. I mean, let's kind of dive into when when you hear from folks or as you're working with folks, like what what's some practical advice around the holidays? I mean, especially early in recovery, how how can folks, you know, avoid picking up the drink when it's such a triggering time of year? I feel like around addiction, but just really anything. I mean, nowadays it's all, you know, people are having a lot of family discord around politics, around, you know, vax, anti-vax. And there, there's a lot of potential tension in the air when people are going home. And I, I feel like, you know, one of the best things to just enter into that situation with is, Am I going to enter into that conflicted space? Am I interested in that? Am I ready for that? Is that what I want? So do I want to address that or do we want to just keep the peace? And, and it's a real trade-off, right? You know, you can talk about the weather and keep things peaceful and maybe mm-hmm. avoid, you know, addressing things and there's no family conflict. But, you know, there's a con to that, which is you don't have as meaningful a connection <laughs> if it's family or your closest friends or your family friends, you know, you, you're missing out on some potential real connection in your relationships in your life. Yeah. I'm laughing as somebody who's terrified of conflict <laughs> and I come from a long line of people who don't enjoy conflict and we are suppressors. Yeah. So yeah, I'm very familiar with the resentment that we can harbor when we when we just continuously sweep things under the rug, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, often, you know, on both sides, you know, we'll complain when it's such an, you know, a, there's no authentic relationship and there's no real comfort and connection. Um, but that is the cost of keeping the peace. And and both are okay. You know, there's there's certain people I like to keep the peace with, and there's other people who we, I sure as hell hope that other person and myself are going to push each other. And we've created that comfortable space, but it's not with everybody. And so that's just something to think about. You know, you, you could never say to anybody, go home to your family and address everything, nor could you say, just keep the peace. It's Christmas. It's the holidays. Don't ruin it. You know, different people are suited for different things, but, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's not just knowing where you stand in that, you know, am I ready to walk into that space? Uh, But having some anticipation for, are they ready for it too? You know, if it's, if it's, you know, a really old mother and she's just finished getting everything ready for Christmas, you know, it might not be the right time to try and address family wounds and trauma. You might want to wait a few months, you know, you know, just a random weekend that you're talking with her. So that's something to be mindful of. It can be absolutely right to address things, but you do have to do it at the right time and place. Yeah. Uh, how about leading up to a situation where you know you're walking into uh, somebody's home or a holiday gathering where you know that, it, you know, if you're in recovery, if you know, uh, recovering from any number of substances and you know that they're going to be there in terms of like taking proactive measures and like 
asking folks, hey, <laughs> can you either not have it there altogether or can you tone it down? Like, I feel like as I ask for this practical advice, like so often it's going to be a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. However, what is your take on being proactive? Because it's self-preservation. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we, we wouldn't willfully put ourselves in harm's way, but there's also a certain amount of, there, there, there's a certain amount of give and take, I feel, because like for me, I want those around me to continue to live their best life. So I don't want to walk in as a notorious people pleaser and feel like I'm the wet blanket, like sort of bringing everybody down mm -hmm. or being the reason why nobody's drinking at the holiday gathering. So let's, let's do this. What's your advice for me specifically? Yeah. I, I think that this tests your relationship with your family because, um, yeah, if we look at that, you know, some of the questions I would have, like you say, if we're looking at your case and not trying to get too general here, is if people are giving up the, let's say, right to drink over the holidays together with you, okay, they're giving something up. Let's call that a sacrifice. It is a wonderful sacrifice if they love you and they care about you. That sacrifice is something that they're not just going to tolerate, but they're actually interested in to say, mm -hmm. Chris is coming home. Let's put these bottles away or let's have a nice meal with some water and whatever, you know, orange juice or, you know, all these fizzy bubbly water choices we have now. Um, they should be very willing and lovingly do that. That's ideal, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're <laughs> nasty about it, if they're passive aggressive, if, oh, fine. Well, he's coming. Well, then that's not a good relationship. So yeah. it's not necessarily just a matter of, you know, are we all comfortable discussing everybody's status with drinking and how long people have been sober? I mean, that's one thing is the, the privacy and vulnerability of, you know, sharing with people if you're sober and not. Uh, but it's also just this test, right? Even if you can do that, it's a test of the relationship. And is it willing to make that sacrifice? So, and that's the difference, right? If it's, if it doesn't, feel like it's a loving sacrifice, well, then it is just a pain mm -hmm. in the butt, like you're saying. And then it does feel like you're imposing, in which case you have different things to navigate, right? There's, there's, you could think of it like, what am I navigating here? Am I navigating my own difficulty expressing what I need is, hey, what I need when I come home is let's keep it dry. Yeah. And, you know, that's expressing a need. So that's one sort of challenge. But, you know, there's other kinds of journeys and challenges, which is, like I said, the, the relationship itself. This is definitely an opportunity for me right now, because I feel like after we get done here, that, that you should probably invoice me for this. I'll send you a t-shirt and a mug. How's that sound? <laughs> but how about on the flip side of it? Like we would get together with friends over the summertime and I would, I would get ahead of things and I would explicitly say, look, I want you guys to feel comfortable drinking because like I'm on really, really solid ground. And, you know, I don't want to feel as though I'm compromising your good time. And then I, you know, I would get into the situation and no one would be drinking and I'd be up in my head. Like, you know, is, <laughs> is there a situation where I should literally tell my friends, I, I don't know, it seems so backwards because it feels like I spent so many years feeling pressured to drink to fit in. Mm -hmm. how, how absurd would it be if I went to a gathering and said, Hey guys, please drink because I need to feel comfortable with you drinking to mm -hmm. Now that I say it out loud, that, that just seems silly. Yeah. It, you know, it depends on the level of that relationship, but that, that silliness, I think actually 
points to just the, t- the tone that could be really nice with your friends. The, the silliness is to what you're naming there is the lightheartedness and the playfulness of a relationship. So to be with your buddies who understand you so well that they know what you're doing with yourself, like what we're doing right now, right? They know what who you are. They know what you represent. They know where you are in your sobriety. Then that actually points to the playfulness of the relationship. And that would be a nice feature of the relationship that you can expand on. So, hey, guys, I actually need you to drink so that I can be comfortable. That's a playful, funny thing, right? Instead of the typical, well, you know, I'm trying to be sober here. Can you guys respect and honor that? And then everyone kind of, okay, fine. Well, what you're doing, what you just said that you said would be silly is actually a nice, playful thing to do. And the really nice thing is it elevates the relationship to a space where they can now drink with you, but because of the playfulness in which you've named this problem for you, where I don't want to impose, but I am trying to be sober, they can now, if it's a good friend, be a helpful accountability partner. Mm. So they get to have a few drinks, but they also know Chris isn't drinking. So it's now playful and accountable, right? Where they know, let's not offer him anything. Mm -hmm. So that can be part of the deal. Hey guys, go ahead and drink, but I need you as my friends to make absolute sure that no matter how good a time you're having or no matter how dejected I look, (laughs) you do not offer me anything and you do not do anything other than support my sobriety. I'm not looking to lapse. I'm not looking for some dramatic evening here. So that's all I ask of you. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool. I, I, I like that. Uh, no, I, I like that take because to me that that feels like room for growth in the relationship as well. Like you mentioned, it is. It's growth, and you're inviting the relationship to be elevated to yeah. another level, right? It might start out where everything's unspoken, mm-hmm. and that's where tension begins, right? Is when there's more unspoken. Is oh, I, I think Chris is. I think he's sober now, and then I don't know. Should we should we drink around him? Should we not? I don't know. Can we like? go to that bar and we were, we were going to go to that place. We used to always go right now. There's tension mm-hmm. and maybe on the surface, everyone's being polite and they're going to support you and do that. But, but there's tension. And so, you know, why not name it? Well, the reason not to sometimes is because we need to keep the peace and be polite and we don't want to reveal everything about ourselves to everybody, but these are good friends, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's rad. One of the recent developments for me, actually, maybe it's been just about a year now. I, uh, in, in terms of sort of, I, I hate to use this terminology, but sort of fitting in or just feeling at home in a situation like that where others are drinking. I remember <laughs> I'm, I'm about to talk about alcohol free drinks. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting at my dining room table with a bottle of, uh, an IPA by Lagunitas in front of me, their non-alcoholic IPA. And I remember looking at it and like questioning myself through and through, like, are you ready for this? As a very like calculated person, it was like, okay, is this gonna, is this gonna be triggering? Basically just being very, uh, very protective of myself. Turns out that I love it. It turns out that I really do enjoy uh, non-alcoholic beers. And what sort of advice can you offer to somebody who, like me, you know, was a beer snob 
and is feeling they're, like they're on solid ground. But then also what sort of warnings would you give to folks who are in <laughs> early recovery or might not feel so solid in their recovery? Yeah. And this is a similar question to, you know, should I let my friends drink around me or something? You know, that there are some people who are not on solid enough footing where that, that would be a bad idea. You know, even, yeah, it makes sense to do to relieve the tension and things. But if it's going to be, you know, way too enticing and maybe not even that evening, but the next day, you know, you just got too close to it. Right. And it, and it was dangerous and too dangerous. And now you've lapsed. Or in this case, right, you, you taste that same taste that you got of an alcoholic beverage. Again, if you're on solid footing, great. You know, I've got some patients who, who like you, they, they really have grown to enjoy these non-alcoholic beverages, but there's others who are not on solid footing and that you know, would not be a good idea. So the, the question sort of underneath these that I help people through is to what degree am I willing to risk my sobriety? Mm-hmm. And for some people, the answer is, there, there is no, there's no room for risk. I've got, you know, wife, I've got kids, I've got this job, everything's going for me. Even if I can be around people who drink, and even if I can have a non-alcoholic, alcoholic beverage, I don't care if I can, I don't want to try because life is just too good right now. Yeah. Or, or life is, it's just too dangerous, right? If I, if I ever go anything, you know, back towards where I was. Uh, but there's other people who feel like they've got many levels of buffer. And what do I mean by that? Well, yeah, maybe let's still pick the same scenario. You've got, you know, wife, kids and, and work, but you know, your lapses tend to be like a few drinks or you have the buffer of your, you've got a psychiatrist and a therapist, or you've got the buffer of like your, you've still got plenty of good friends that, uh, that know what to look out for. Or the, the buffer that your wife maybe is also, you know, um, understanding enough that if you have a couple days of bad drinking, she's not going to leave you or whatever that buffer looks like. But yeah, you know, if you're on your last string, you, you could get fired. Your wife's already made, you know, certain ultimatums. Or, well, might not be worth the risk. Yeah. And that goes for, you know, so many things in life is, you know, how far do we push something to find out? Sometimes that's not worth finding out. Sometimes it is. Yeah. I feel like that that's kind of going to be something of a running theme as I ask more like general questions. So let's kind of get into some scenarios where there are some more specific details. Yeah. And again, this, this will be very specific because this is my story. Uh, I grew up in a culture in Northeastern Wisconsin where drinking was such a central thread of 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 the experience and you know one of my older brothers you know while he was in high school drank a lot i'm not sure exactly what else he had done but he put my parents through hell to a great extent and so because of that like i you know kept alcohol you know at a 10 foot pole's distance you know eventually uh that changed a bit you know as i graduated high school started approaching like the college experience and stuff and and so i started drinking a bit And then I ended up hanging out with this brother of mine. Mm -hmm. And when we would go out, it would, it would, you know, it it would get very, very ugly. Lots of drinking, lots of situations where, where I, I would, I would literally bail and walk somewhere else. There were nights when I would vanish, not talk to him for a couple of days 
And for all he knew, I, I, I could have been lying in a ditch somewhere. Mm. And then over the years, it's just the, the, the situation turned very, very ugly. And as you know, as, as folks know, eventually I went through rehab and it, this brother of mine continued to spiral mm-hmm. and eventually my parents had to, you know, effectively like cut him off. Mm-hmm. So when I was in rehab, I was, you know, the, the, the question kept coming up in my mind. It's like, do I try to save my brother who is a relatively nasty person by nature? And I think even he would tell you that, that there is just something miswired in him, that he's a very, he's a very cutting person. And this brother of mine is by no, by no means a deadbeat, like, like similar to me being such a high functioning alcoholic. My brother was by all appearances, incredibly successful, still is. Now, when I was in treatment, you know, it was very made very clear to us. It was like, don't don't leave rehab and feel it. Don't don't go and try to save somebody. You know, you need to save yourself. Does there come a point where I should try to save my brother or reach out to him? Because to me, it's always felt as though this is his natural state. Mm-hmm. Would I even? Would I be just flat out stepping into the lion's den by try- by trying to pull him out of that natural state and try to turn him in- into maybe a person, like a healthy person that I would want him to be? Mm-hmm. It's it's tough for me. I, you know, I, I wrestle with it regularly, whether to even try to salvage, you know, my relationship with my brother. Yeah. The obvious risk is in trying to poke around at the beast that, that the beast either snaps at you or the beast runs away because it doesn't want to address this, doesn't want to have any, any mention, right? So, so there is real risk, right, at, at, uh, at either aggression towards you or retreat, okay? So that, that's very real and uh, it, usually impossible to calculate. I mean, you can look at the person's history. That's sure as hell going to help you have some idea, but you don't know what's going to happen next time. You don't know what movie he watched the night before and whether he's in a open loving mood or if he's in a spiteful pissy mood. And so you really never know. And also just to weave in here, I mean, it would be a, a very common sort of AA tenant of, you know, you, you've got to turn around and give, right? You, you, you have to give the gift you got, right? So right. one little subtle note to make there is there's no instruction that uh, even if you follow that, you know, it doesn't have to be towards your brother. It can be towards someone much more welcoming, coming to you, or, you know, that's in the space, like a meeting, you know, in a space where that's very appropriate and understood that that's, that's the deal. Um, it, you know, certainly to direct it at whoever you want at a time of your choosing against the other person's will now creates real questions. Now, for your brother, here are some things I would recommend keeping in mind as you approach that and, and some frameworks. One is, um, I, I, as much as this is about either you call it addiction, drinking, I, I think when that's the focus, you, you've probably already missed where the connection or gain could be had. Because in my view, you know, alcohol is always a symptom. Alcohol is not the problem. Is it a symptom that then creates its own problems? Well, of course, of course you get into all kinds of trouble with alcohol. But it's not the beginning. Right. And 
because it's not the beginning, that means there's always something much greater to be addressed. And that greater thing to be addressed, like you say, maybe he's just been a cranky person his whole life. Well, by temperament, sure, certain people are just kind of short and edgy, but which you could even say biologically gets attributed to as well. You know, maybe he's got high testosterone levels, which can, you know, obviously make people a little more irritable or on the aggressive end. So even if it's a pure biological sort of crankiness, that is not a full explanation, right? So there are undoubtedly all kinds of reasons that he's cranky as a person. And you may know or not know what led to that for him, but that's where the gold is. The gold is not, hey, bro, you know, I need you to stop drinking. It's, mm. brother, I've seen you cranky for your whole life, as, as long as I can remember, right? And you're laughing as I say this, and that's, that's what you would hope he can do. Now, that's when you do, you want good timing so that he can laugh at that and say, yeah, I've been a real cranky bastard my whole <laughs> life. You got that right. Okay, well, now you're talking. You know, if, if you bring that up and, and he doesn't want to have it, well, then, you know, your, your conversation should probably stop there. But do you think I should use the phrase nasty motherfucker? Because that, that that's how I would describe him. <laughs> if that feels if that feels natural to you and that's language that, you know, he's really comfortable and familiar with. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Because right. you're, you're looking for a very real connection. Right. You do not want to sound like I've come in on my high horse. I have, <laughs> you know gone to other lands and I'm coming back to bestow upon you all the, you know, the wise information. So if using really tidy, neat language is going to sound like you're on a high horse, do not use it. Yeah. Yeah. If you know your own language, you know, your brothers. Uh, yeah, definitely use that level, that leveling sort of language and say, you've been a nasty motherfucker your whole life and laugh while you say it, you know, okay, we're getting real here. Fine. And, and I wouldn't usually recommend even beginning to bring up alcohol. Yeah, yeah. You know, the conversation should be around why he's so cranky. And, well, I have a lot of other things to say. Well, well, no, I, I mean, really, and, and this, is, this is the conflict in my mind, is logically for me, well, first off, I, I love that you point out that alcohol can be a symptom because that's when I learned when I, when I got clean is that it was very much uh, me self-medicating from deeper issues, which I oh see, but I always knew that I had depression and anxiety. So to hear that alcoholism, alcohol abuse was a symptom of that made all the sense in the world. And to me, gave me a puncher's chance. My concern with my brother <laughs> is that mm -hmm. for him, being a drunk has been his natural habitat all of his life. And just and and I I would have to think that given our pedigree, given our family tree, that there probably is a lot of mental illness. There, there's probably mental illness there. However, you know, me bringing up, I just want you to be happy, or I want you to live a full life, would be excellent advice for me, but not for him, because to him, his current state of affairs is his happy place. Or at least he has himself convinced of that. Yeah, well, that would be a good question. You know, how convinced is he? And you got to always be open to playing with words because if you say, hey, John, let's get you happier, that might just sound like way too mushy 
right? And and just no, that word that I'm I'm fine, I'm happy. But um, but there are very very likely things. If, if your observation is that he's a cranky bastard and he's not enjoying himself, then you know it's it's merely a question of you know how how would he put that into words and how would he describe that? So he may not describe it with emotional words, but he may say, I don't think I made the right choices in life, something like that. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I, you know, I'm just venturing a guess, but you know, he may say something that sounds a little more guarded like that. Mm -hmm. you know, that's a guarded thing to say. One thing I know would not work in this case is an intervention. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know for a fact <laughs> that that would be a non-starter. Which leads me to another scenario. There's a regular listener of the podcast who is, he's been in dire straits for more than a year now. He's got two young kids. One of them, I believe, if not a teenager, is approaching being a teenager. Uh, the other, you know, in elementary school. And his wife has become a raging alcoholic. Uh, she's only recently begun abusing opioids as well, painkillers. And she blames him for the fact that she has to drink mm. in order to be happy. First off, at every opportunity, like she will deny up and down six ways from Sunday that she's drinking, period. But of course, he continues to find empty vodka bottles, half full vodka bottles everywhere. And it came to a point where recently she was found passed out in the car with the children in the car with her. Oh, boy. She's crashed the car. And it feels like in all of these scenarios, it's like, what the hell is it going to take? And I often wondered this with John. It was like, do I need to like find a way to like get him pulled over? Do I need to find a way to get him in trouble so that there can be legal recourse? Because like, for instance, here in Illinois, you know, folks can't be involuntarily, you know, put into treatment. Mm -hmm. So, this this listener he doesn't want to lose his marriage however to, to me it just, it just feels as though that there's there might not be another course of action apart apart from from literally you know the preservation of his family yeah i and i don't think and he insisted an intervention would not work which i can identify with that because of john's situation like you know what because I have to assume that a lot of people come to you who aren't the people who are in the throes of addiction. It's the partner. Like, what what would you tell this partner in this situation? Yeah, there's, yeah, let, let's just, for anybody listening, yeah, I mean, we, we want to start off with first, second, third line of defense first, right? You know, we, so you might try to mention, you know, hey, you know, I see this and that happening. Would you want to consider treatment or hey, I can help line up a, a therapist or, you know, whatever whatever level of need they have, you know, you might just go straight at it and suggest it. And, you know, if everything's ideal, they say, oh, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but what we're talking about here, just so people can kind of work through is what happens if you know that won't be the case, or let's even imagine you've tried it, you know, you've tried an intervention or something, and it just went horribly wrong. And now they've yeah. retreated or attacked you. So now, right, in that difficult case, what are we looking at? Y you want to try to engage with someone around ideas and words that or that have no way to bring about defensive conflicted conversation so to say for that guy to say to his wife 
I think you're an alcoholic, or I think you're drinking a lot more than you say you are, or I think you need treatment, any of those statements, she can now come up with reasons that she disagrees, or that it's not accurate, or that he's wrong, or that he's exaggerating, or anything, right? She could say, no, I didn't have all that, you had some of that alcohol too, or we had people over, or with the, the car. Well, that was one time ever. You can really break our marriage over. You know, she can always come up with some defense. Okay. So when we put words out there to try and help the situation, it has to be words that there's really just no argument for. Okay. So there is an argument if you're calling someone an alcoholic. Well, mm-hmm. so what's an alcoholic? Is it right. binges? Is it you you know? Is it rare, but you get behind the wheel? Is it a certain amount most days? Is it that you can't stop drinking? I mean, there's a clinical definition, but forget that. Everyone's got their own idea of what it means to be an alcoholic. And even if you are, by everybody's sense of the term, doesn't mean that person's going to admit it. So that's usually a, a, you know, a very bad place to start. Instead, the words you put out there should have no conflict. So Uh, For him, it might be something like you mentioned, right? If she's already revealed that in her mind she's drinking because the marriage is bad or or because he's doing things that causes her to drink, that would be a wonderful place to start. So is the end goal that she got some kind of treatment or stops drinking? Maybe, but you want that to feel incidental almost. So the way to reach her might be to talk about the marriage itself and to make no mention of alcohol to start. So you know, hey, wife, I know you've mentioned to me before that there's things I'm doing that have driven you to drink or just driven you mad, right? You don't even have to say drink. You know, right. made you really upset. I'm open to talking about that now. I want to hear what it is I'm doing. I'm ready to do that or, or I'm ready to talk about it. And, you know, and then, well, what's for her to argue with there? Maybe she comes yeah. in a little too hot and says, well, yeah, there is, it's just that. But then, you know, if you're really wanting to get somewhere, you withstand that heat and you say, Mm. yeah, no, I know. I know I've said that before and I didn't do anything. And maybe that's because, you know, you want to own up that responsibility. It might also be because you talked about it, but it it got just so nasty that you you couldn't even get anywhere. And either of those would be okay to share. Say, you know, I, I know I said this to you before, but Last time, I didn't come away really clear for myself what it is that's wrong or what it is that you're so upset with me about. So obviously, there's different scenarios there, but you know, you want to try and reach that. Well, now she's very interested. Finally, you, you know, <laughs> you expletive husband, you know, like, finally, yes, okay, yeah, here's what I'm upset about. Okay, now you've got items, you know, one, two, and three to work on. Now we've got something to talk about. And, mm-hmm. you know, for anybody listening, that you, you have to trust that in that conversation, her drinking will incidentally arise. She may even volunteer that. But you're not looking to score a point and have her admit that she was drinking too much. You're looking to keep the conversation about what's wrong otherwise. Mm-hmm. So emotionally, mm-hmm. psychologically, uh, decisions and behaviors being made. Uh, You want to keep the conversation to things outside of the drinking to help show the wife that 
here's the meat of the matter. Here's what we really need to be discussing when we sit down on the couch and things have calmed enough to have a conversation. This is what that can look like. It also feels to me like you'd have to keep in mind that the ultimate goal is to keep moving the ball down the field. Mm -hmm. That you're gonna you're gonna ground and pound. You're gonna pick up a few yards here and there, and every once in a while you're gonna take a false start. Yeah, you know what I mean. How how do you get the partner who is just fried by this situation? How do you get them to buy into the fact that there are going to be setbacks, but there's also the potential to 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 rattle off some big plays and uh, and convert on down and distance. I think those are things that you need to name as they occur. So if you have that initial conversation and she feels like, finally, you're going to sit and listen to my grievances here. Okay, well, that's a win. And you have, like I said, you have to be ready and willing to tolerate that onslaught, even though you know she's the one that's been messing up, as far as at least the drinking is concerned, right? Even though you know that, you've got to extend the peace offering. And that means you have to withstand her initial blows and stand there in the face of that, like a good boxer, right? And I know you've used those analogies. So you take the body blow here. She's going to hit. You take the body blow because you know you can go for a knockout later. You don't swing back right away, right? So you're going to take that body blow, let her tire herself out, right? And, and so mm-hmm. she's going to come at you. You've been doing this, that, and that. You don't strike back. If you strike back and say, okay, well, yeah, you think that, you know, you think that's so horrible, what I've done. What about you getting drunk in the car with the kids? Well, you've just struck back. And what did you just teach her? It's it's exactly your concern. You have just taught her that this is going to turn into tit for tat. And that when I sit down to talk and get real, I'm going to attack you. I'm going to, I'm going to take your vulnerability and, and use it. And, and instead you want to help think of this as training. If you were to repeat the process mm-hmm. over and over, what would you be training? And if the if the case instead is you're training them that this is a time we're going to both be able to hear each other and respond, then, well, that's really fun. They're going to want to be drawn in and, and they're going to do that. So you're not going to have the problem you're talking about if every single time it's turned into a good thing. But when I say you have to note that out loud in real time, at the end of the conversation, if you think you did a decent job and you took some body blows, and you're going to retreat to your corner and think about what you've done, that might be something you note out loud and just say, you know, hey, I just want you to know I I really heard what you said. I'm going to think about that. And I hope you feel comfortable letting me know next time, you know, how I'm doing. I hope you feel comfortable letting me know just how angry and upset you are. Yeah. Right. So you just noted that out loud so that you both didn't just do it, but you noticed that you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, uh, the uh, the training concept is interesting to me, where, you know, when we train, you know, there's incremental growth there. I just think about after the fact, I think about the next day or the next weekend, should there be a major setback where something catastrophic happens and you feel like you're back to it. I just feel like there's got to be so much patience involved in this. Well, it's not, it's not should there be, you know, you're putting it politely. There absolutely will be. I mean, there's setbacks everywhere. You know, if you look closely enough, they're, they're happening every day. Mm-hmm. So there's absolutely setbacks and those are fine, but they should be named within the context mm-hmm. of this larger process. So, right. hey, 
you know, I know we sat down and I listened to those things. I know it's only a few days later and here we are getting back into it again in a bad way. Let's, let's figure out, you know, if we can do what we did a few days ago. Yeah. Right. So, so you're naming that, right. You're putting it back into a larger context where there is the opportunity to grow together. That's how you could, you, any, any person can go through a hell of a lot when you know that there might be something worth it at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's for no reason, we don't put, we don't put up with one minute of pain when we don't know what it's for. Mm. Um, yeah. We're getting into the why, you know, and, and that, yes. And yeah, I mean, for that, for me again, to come back to my situation, my why was, my why was obvious for others. It takes a while to, especially if, if, if the why is so far down the road, mm-hmm. it, 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 there's, there's a lot of patience involved. All right. So in this case, in the uh, situation that, my listener is facing, you know, I've leveled with him several times that I personally feel that the one way that his wife is going to get some help is to get into rehab. And as we're discussing, sometimes it feels near impossible to get somebody there to where they can get help for a sustained amount of time and get away from that last drink. Well, I can speak from experience that I got on the right track at Gateway Foundation in Aurora, Illinois. And I'm proud to say that they're a sponsor of this podcast. Let's hear all about them. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work, and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Mm -hmm. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free, confidential consultation, or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. I really appreciate that we can kind of talk about the fact that you probably have a lot of patients who come to you and they've tried everything. Uh, they've, they've tried AA, they've gone through rehab, and a lot of people must come to you feeling downright broken. What is it like when, when folks appreci- uh, you know, approach you and they, they feel like they've exhausted all roads? And then I suppose to kind of flip that on its head when, when, when the light bulb goes on for somebody and you are able to put together a program and you see people kind of seize their moment in time. I mean, that's, that's got to be absolutely special for you when you can kind of consider where you, where you began with such a broken person. And then you see somebody who is, you know, living life 100%. Yeah, that, that's the fun of it for me, you know, is there's the easily recognizable nice part, which is, you know, people's lives got better, yay. But I actually enjoy difficult cases. And that's what I built my career in. And those are only more rewarding because there's more difficulty on that road. You know, like I said, they, they come in and they're almost starting treatment. I mean, it's, it's almost comical, right? They're starting treatment, essentially telling you, nothing will work. And he's like, well, then what are we doing here? Right. And, and that actually might be the starting place. Well, you know, there's something in this for you that you even set this up or called. Right. So 
whenever anybody even entertains that it means actually there's more hope than they might state. And it is those little, you know, if you call it, you know, a, a game, a challenge to play there. I mean, that's, that's a really fun thing for me. So people say, and it's very common for patients to feel kind of like you, like I'm a, I'm a burden. I don't, I don't want to discomfort other people. And, you know, they'll be in a paid session where they feel like their job is to make my life, you know, simple mm. and easy. Right. And, yeah. you know, and you have to remind them sometimes like, this is a process I enjoy. You know, if you tell me a problem and I could give you three simple steps to, you know, gaining sobriety that, you know, you make some new friends and, you know, you go exercise and get good sleep and think about what matters in life and you'll wake up. Okay. Um, that'd be actually quite meaningless and boring for me. I, I might still do that. I'd feel good if people are getting better, but on a very personal level, that wouldn't be very rewarding. So I actually enjoy when patients trip me up and when they encounter, uh, you know, difficult, uh, when, when their journey is just uh, reaching dead end after dead end, uh, that's when I perk up is, you know, okay, well, this is going to be a good one. And, yeah. and so uh, in the same way, it's rewarding for me to get through something more difficult. That's part of a, a tenant that you'd like to instill for patients, right? Is that, yeah, your road's been difficult, but you know, the degree of your difficulty is the degree of triumph you will feel. And that doesn't mean you intentionally make your road difficult, but it means when the road is difficult already, uh, there's a lot on the other side. And it's not just to say, well, the triumph is greater, but the act of reaching these dead ends and having to wrestle through them is diagnostic in itself. You know, it usually does mean that there's been misses and whatever that is, is not usually because it's a very difficult case. It's because it hasn't reached the right frameworks. You've, you've not yet been shown the right kinds of concepts to get better. I, I have yet to meet a patient that I did not fully honestly believe could get fully better. That's pretty rad. I love that because because there is such a sense of hopelessness for a lot of folks. You mentioned that that you like it when people can come in and, and kind of trip you up a little bit or make 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 you get creative. Some folks think that that I because I tried AA and it wasn't my jam, which I'll take yet another moment to like extol the virtues of smart recovery. I love smart recovery. I love sort of the live the live forum and sort of working together with people on tools and stuff. But, the, but there are a couple of like components about AA that I feel like could be non-starters for folks. Mm -hmm. And in some of these cases, you know, I, I could ask you some very general questions to which I think I already know the answers. For instance, when folks in a, in a sponsorship tree might tell you that you need to cut out everybody in your life who you've ever had a drink with, then you might, you might realize that I'm describing what was a very, very militant sponsorship tree that I was in. Mm -hmm. Because for me, that was like, okay, well, I can't, I'd like, <laughs> I need to get divorced. I basically need to start from scratch. Mm -hmm. But here is a, here's a specific thing that I think is sort of universal to AA in that there is this advice or requirement in some sponsorship trees that you are celibate, mm -hmm. that you are, that you are not to get into a relationship and you are not to have sex for like a year. Any truth to that, doctor? <laughs> <laughs> Any truth? Yes. You know, I, I think everything out of 
12 steps, you know, there, there's truth in every part of it somewhere. Is there truth to the idea that focusing on yourself, examining your own deficits takes so much energy and effort that you shouldn't be trying to manage relationships or manage other people? You know, there's sure there's truth to that, but life isn't that clean, right? So it's messy. You may already be in a relationship that you'd really like to keep. You may meet someone two months later that's the most amazing person you've ever met. And you know it's not out of desperation, but that this person is actually amazing. And three of your best friends and your mother echo the same sentiment, right? That's not someone you might want to let go, right? And so life is messy that way. And, you know, for that reason, it's, I'm, I'm not of the mindset. It's not just to say this about 12 step, but really anything, you know, to, to say that there's a certain number or certain steps at all to take, to get somewhere in life. I, I, I've learned enough in life to know that anybody or any organization who claims to have these steps to reach anything, um, you run the other way. And it's fine if those are starting points, but that they're mere starting points. Then they can be worked with, they can be edited, altered, and evolved. Religion is a great example. You know, good religion will evolve how the text is interpreted. So mm-hmm. that's something society wrestles with is, well, who gets to decide that and, and how evolved? You know, and that's where it gets messy. And that's my point is, you know, the, the words are one thing, but you have to understand it's just a starting place whether that's 12 step or my own program, right? There's, and in my program, I try and really offer a menu more so than steps. So it's a, it's, it's a journey to help you discover things for yourself. It's not a prescriptive sort of program that here's the things you do. It's more like here are concepts to think about. And whenever one learns or works on themselves, that's always how it should be done is, can you find relevant pieces of information that make that person reflect and grow and there's no one set of those things it's it's an endless menu yeah all right how how about this i'm a recovering sex addict i'm a sadist (laughs) (laughs) because you said you wanted details i'm not this is hypothetical isn't there a, a separation between love and sex to where if you're four months into recovery that you you can't close the door to love like what, what would, what sort of advice would you give to somebody who is a recovering sex addict? You have to examine the relationship you have to that object of addiction. So whether that's drinking, sex, whatever it is, you have to know for yourself, have you fundamentally changed your relationship to it? Because there's a lot of objects of addiction that in themselves are either healthy or okay in moderation. Sex, healthy. Food, healthy. Shopping, healthy. Chocolate, healthy video games, healthy, a drink or two, let's call healthy. Mm-hmm. Most data would say a, a drink or two or less is healthy. Right. There's some data to say that's not the case, but most of it says it is. Yeah. So let's call a lot of those things healthy, right? I, I would not put, you know, heroin, meth, things like that, right. healthy. Right. Everything else I named, let's call healthy. Even a little murder is too much murder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of healthy things and, and then you know, we need to use a different framework, right? Because we know we're going to be exposing ourselves to some risk that you want to have sex, 
you want to be able to play a video game, uh, you sure as hell want to eat things with sugar sometimes. So there's a lot of addictive things that we actually, a healthy person would engage in. Mm -hmm. And, and so there it becomes trickier, but you know, the, the framework is, have I changed my relationship to it? Now let me get more specific. Addiction to me is not just a list of criteria that says I've grown dependent on it and my tolerance has gone up and now I can't get off of it. That, that's such a superficial, unhelpful uh, definition. Uh, the psychological way of thinking about addiction that's more meaningful is, is there a pain that I'm running away from and, and trying to use something to escape that? Mm -hmm. So in a true addictive process, there's an initial emotional pain or distress. It could be as severe as a, you know, trauma and abuse. It could be as slight as boredom and uncertainty about what to do with mm, oneself. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So however existential or dramatic, right, that's your emotional pain. The attempt to get out of that uncomfortable emotional place brings the question of a craving or addiction, right? Is how, what am I going to do with this uncomfortable feeling? Yeah. If you can tolerate that, you don't have addiction. If you can't, then you come up with a way out. That's a craving. What's the way out? Well, can change depending on the day or the kind of addict you are. But, you know, let's say it's alcohol. Let's say it's sex. If you're using that to escape an unwanted feeling, that leads to unhealthy behavior. It's a different relationship. So let's use sex, right? If you're using sex to escape unwanted feelings, maybe you feel small, unwanted, maybe you feel depressed, scared. If you're using it to escape those feelings, that's not good sex. No matter what the relationship is like with the person otherwise, right? right? You could be married. It could be that you're cheating on someone. That, that's actually right now a separate question. Yeah. But right now is, is that sexual act an escape of a feeling or is it out of a want and a desire in itself? Yeah. A, a want to connect and intimately, you know, be with someone. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I hadn't, I hadn't gotten into video games in many, many years. And I, and then we recently upgraded from the Wii to the Nintendo switch. And one of the games that I bought is the new Zelda. <laughs> and my children actually love watching me play Zelda. And I've been a little bit concerned about my addiction level to Zelda, but it sounds, <laughs> to me, I don't think that I'm trying to escape anything. I'm just really into a really cool video game. So I, I, I think I'm okay in that realm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's why, you know, I propose this framework is if it's cause you had a, a long, hard day or you hate your family or you hate, you know, the world and you're trying to escape it with a video game, uh, that's not a healthy way to use it. Yeah. But if it's just out of a desire, you you get to have fun playing with your kids or you just enjoy it in itself, that's fine. Now, there's a lot of caveats there. You know, you can, uh, even if it's not out of an escape, a lot of things are designed to uh, take all of our time. Yeah, yeah. Social media, social media would be a, a you know, a <laughs> very good example here. So video games, social media, you know, Netflix, those things are all vying for our time. Dopamine hits. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that to me, you know, you could call addiction. I don't care what you call that, but that's not the same kind of addiction that we're talking about. Yeah. And it's more than a question of um, practical sort of decisions to make. So can I use certain apps that make it so I can't even use Facebook for a certain time of day or, 
you know, do I make certain rules in the house of how much, you know, we can play these video games. So those become more practical questions than true life dilemmas and problems of addiction. Yeah. Well, as, as we talk about true dilemmas and problems, uh, folks should go to selfrecovery.org. Uh, they should read the testimonials, man. If that doesn't get people charged up, I'm not sure what exactly will. Uh, it, a question for you. Uh, can somebody simply email or, or, or call you and they can do, uh, just a bit of a screening right off of the top like that. Cause that initial, that initial request for help is huge. Like what, what are people going to encounter if they reach out to you? So, uh, I, my practice is separate than self-recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, so for my practice, yes, you know, anybody would be able to phone or email and, and reach out for help. Mm -hmm. And I do respond to everybody. With self-recovery, uh, that's uh, that's a program that's meant to be a an individual journey in itself, mm -hmm. and people go through that to discover new things, discover what's been keeping them stuck, and grow as people. Um, that's not where I'm helping one-on-one, -on -one, hands-on. There is a group that um, you're automatically enrolled in when you join self-recovery, mm -hmm. so there is a group aspect to it, but it, it's uh, not part of my practice you know, where people are getting my individual time in there. Yeah. And, and part of that's intentional. You know, like we said, a lot of people aren't looking for someone to be looking over their shoulder or asking, well, why did you write this or what happened there? A lot of people want to keep it private and know that it's for them and them only to discover these things. Uh, and then they can voluntarily bring that into a treatment, whether that's with me or with anybody locally for them. And, uh, and so it's not meant to replace treatment, but self-recovery is meant to you know, it often does work on its own, right. but it's, uh, but in the event that you're still looking for more, there's actually a lot of points in the program where it does help orient you and point you to the right kind of help, depending on how you struggle. Yeah. Well, I feel much more prepared for the holidays now. <laughs> Good. Yeah. No, it, the, there is a lot of actionable advice here for me specifically. And for, I know just really anybody who's listened. So I can't thank you enough because there are broad strokes in recovery that can be that can make things daunting when they don't feel like they apply to us. So you know, kudos for the very holistic and personalized approach that you take. Well, thank you, and 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 thanks for having me. Yeah, it is important, you know, that we take basic advice, basic tenets, and that's okay for a starting point. But you know, whether it's your own friend network group therapist, you know, you need a space to work through just how relevant it is for you and what to do with it. People should check out selfrecovery.org. Once again, thank you for all your time and thank you for all the work that you do and the, and the great stuff you're putting out into the world. Thank you too. I love this podcast and uh, really I'm happy to be on the show, Chris. All right. Cheers. Take care of yourself and happy holidays. Same to you. All right, what'd you get this Christmas? What did you get from Dr. Daniel Hockman, from Santa Hockman? What did he bring you? Hopefully you can take some of this, some of this knowledge that he imparted, and you can truly have a happy holiday by getting ahead of some of these conversations, right? Not just self-preservation, but I love that he talked about some of these conversations can actually deepen our relationships with folks. Wouldn't that be a nice Christmas gift? 
All right, guys, I'm going to talk to you one more time before Christmas officially arrives. My friend Ellis Miller is going to join us in the next episode. She has an incredible story about a near suicide attempt and her longtime wrestle with bipolar disorder. And spoiler alert, she is living her very best life. Until then, have a terrific week. Go forth and conquer. And remember that if things feel like they're falling apart outside of this space, right here, we are always coming together. I love you. Love all of you very much. And we'll talk to you soon. Peace. We out.